Happy New Year. Welcome to our first respiratory care podcast of 2014. This is Dean Hess, editor of the journal, along with Sarah Moore, our assistant editor. Sarah, let's get started with our first paper. Editor's Choice paper this month is Pulmonary Function Test Quality in the Elderly, a Comparison with Younger Adults by Haynes. This study sought to determine if elderly patients are able to achieve both spirometry and diffusion capacity quality scores comparable to a younger adult population. It is a retrospective review of pulmonary function data over a 22-month period, a list of every subject 80 years or older, the elderly group, and ages 40 to 50 years, the control group, tested during the time period was compiled. The quality of spirometry and DLCO testing were examined. Overall, 93% of the elderly group and 92% of the control group spirometry tests satisfied all American Thoracic Society and European Respiratory Society acceptability and reproducibility criteria. 85% of the elderly group and 89% of the control group DLCO tests satisfied all the acceptability and reproducibility criteria. The author concluded that elderly patients referred to a hospital-based pulmonary function test lab can be expected to achieve spirometry and DLCO quality scores comparable to younger adult patients. Elderly patients may be at greater risk for misdiagnosis and inappropriate treatment as a consequence of pulmonary function tests underutilization and tests being conducted with low-quality expectations. Thus, the study by Haynes is of interest. He found that elderly patients referred to a hospital-based pulmonary function test lab can be expected to achieve spirometry and DLCO quality scores comparable to younger adult patients. As Sorensen points out in her editorial, this paper may be of interest primarily to those who perform PFTs, but the implications are far more global. These data should be used to promote and encourage physicians to appreciate the need for good quality pulmonary function studies in older adults. Our next paper is Effective Training on Inspiratory Load Compensation in Weaned and Unweaned Mechanically Ventilated ICU Patients by Smith and colleagues. They retrospectively compared the inspiratory load compensation responses according to the clinical outcomes of maximum inspiratory pressure and weaning outcome in difficult-to-wean ICU patients. Sixteen tracheostomized subjects underwent inspiratory muscle strength training five days a week at the highest tolerated load in conjunction with daily progressive spontaneous breathing trials. Maximum inspiratory pressure and inspiratory load compensation with 10 centimeter water load were compared in the subjects before and after inspiratory muscle strength training. Demographics, respiratory mechanics, and initial maximal inspiratory pressure did not significantly differ between the groups. After inspiratory muscle strength training, maximal inspiratory pressure significantly increased in the entire sample. Both before and after inspiratory muscle strength training, subjects who weaned generated greater flow and volume inspiratory load compensation than subjects who failed to wean. Additionally, inspiratory load compensation flow, tidal volume, and duty cycle increased upon ventilator weaning at loads of 5, 10, and 15 centimeters water. 
The authors concluded that flow inspiratory load compensation at a threshold load of 10 cm water in ventilated tracheostomized subjects positively correlated with maximum inspiratory pressure. Although maximum inspiratory pressure improved in both groups, the flow and volume inspiratory load compensation responses of the weaned subjects were more robust, both before and after inspiratory muscle strength training. The results suggest that inspiratory load compensation response is different in weaned and unweaned subjects, reflecting dynamic inspiratory muscular efforts that could be influential on weaning. While inspiratory muscle weakness is common in prolonged mechanical ventilation, inspiratory muscle strength training can facilitate strengthening and ventilator weaning. However, the inspiratory load compensation responses to threshold loads are not well characterized in patients. The results of this study suggest that the inspiratory load compensation response is different in patients who are successfully liberated from mechanical ventilation and those who are not, reflecting dynamic inspiratory muscle efforts that could be influential on the ventilator weaning process. As pointed out by Sassoon, inspiratory muscle strength training has the potential to accelerate the process of the ventilator liberation process. A large randomized controlled study with a defined standardized protocol is needed. Our next paper is Suction Catheter Size, an Assessment and Comparison of Three Different Calculation Methods by Russian et al. A suction catheter to endotracheal tube ratio of less than 50% is consistent with the current recommendations. The authors theorize that a more satisfactory assessment of suction catheter to endotracheal tube ratio could be accomplished using volume or area formulas and expansion of diameter recommendations. Some respiratory care texts recommend a suction catheter to endotracheal tube ratio that exceeds the published standards. The authors calculated the internal volume and cross-sectional area of various endotracheal tube sizes, the external volume and cross-sectional area of various suction catheter sizes, and the suction catheter to endotracheal tube ratios. They also measured negative pressures created by suction in a lung model during multiple suction maneuvers. Volume and area calculations provided an alternative method for determining the suction catheter to endotracheal tube ratio. A volume or area ratio of 50% corresponds to a diameter ratio of 70%. Negative pressures during suctioning remain low at the new ratios, so a larger suction catheter than current clinical practice guidelines still allows adequate air passage between the suction catheter and endotracheal tube. These results support an alternative suction catheter to endotracheal tube ratio when pairing suction catheters and endotracheal tubes. Current AARC clinical practice guidelines recommend a suction catheter to endotracheal tube ratio based on the external diameter of the suction catheter and the internal diameter of the endotracheal tube. Russian et al. calculated the internal volume and cross-sectional area of various endotracheal tube sizes 
the external volume and cross-sectional area of various suction catheter sizes, and the ratio of suction catheter to endotracheal tube size. Interestingly, a volume or area ratio of 50% corresponds to a diameter ratio of 70%. Therefore, a larger suction catheter than recommended by current clinical practice guidelines allows adequate air passage between the catheter and the endotracheal tube. Our next paper is by Otto and colleagues, and its title is Hygrometric Properties of Inspired Gas and Oral Dryness in Patients with Acute Respiratory Failure During Non-Invasive Ventilation. They measured absolute humidity inside oral nasal masks on subjects with acute respiratory failure during 24 hours on non-invasive ventilation. A single-limb turbine ventilator and oral nasal mask with an exhalation port were used for NIV. Oral moistness was evaluated using an oral moisture checking device, and three times during the 24 hours the subject subjectively scored the feeling of dryness on a 0 to 10 scale, in which 10 was the most severe dryness. 16 subjects were enrolled. The mean humidity inside the mask was 30 milligrams of water per liter. The median oral moistness was 19%, and the median oral dryness score was 5.5. Absolute humidity and inspired gas leak correlated inversely, both within the subjects and between the subjects. Absolute humidity and oral moistness correlated with the subjects. Oral breathing was associated with reduced oral moistness and increased oral dryness score. The authors concluded that absolute humidity varied among the subjects, and some complained of oral dryness even with a heated humidifier. Oral breathing decreased oral moistness and worsened the feeling of dryness. Because non-invasive ventilation delivers medical gas at high flow, inadequate humidification may cause oral dryness and patient discomfort. Heated humidification can be used during NIV, but little has been reported about the effects on hygrometric conditions inside an oronasal mask and oral dryness during 24 hours on NIV. Odo et al. measured absolute humidity inside oronasal masks on subjects with acute respiratory failure during 24 hours on NIV. Absolute humidity varied among subjects, and some complained of oral dryness even with a heated humidifier. Not surprising, oral breathing decreased oral moistness and worsened the feeling of dryness. Paper by McNamara is Heated Humidification Improves Clinical Outcomes Compared to a Heat and Moisture Exchanger in Children with Tracheostomies. They conducted a short-term 20-hour and a long-term 10-week randomized crossover studies comparing a heated humidifier to a heat and moisture exchanger in children with established tracheostomies. Subjects were assessed for clinical events, clinical examination findings, airway cytokine levels, and airway secretion viscoelasticity. Children using the heated humidifier had decreased respiratory examination score and improved oxygenation, but no change in clinical events over the short term. There was a decrease in acute clinical events in the long-term study. 
No differences were found in airway secretion viscoelasticity results or cytokine levels in either study, but these sample numbers were limited. The authors concluded that, over 20 hours use, heated humidification compared to a heat and moisture exchanger improved work of breathing. Over a longer 10-week treatment period, heated humidity resulted in decreased adverse clinical events. The upper airway humidifies and warms inspired gases before they reach the trachea, a process bypassed by the insertion of a tracheostomy, necessitating humidification of inspired gases. The authors found that, over 20 hours of use, heated humidity, compared to heat and moisture exchanger, improved worker breathing. Over a longer 10-week treatment period, heated humidification resulted in decreased adverse clinical events. This suggests that heated humidity is preferable to a heat and moisture exchanger in this patient population. Effects of smoking, depression, and anxiety on mortality in COPD patients, a prospective study is by Liu et al. They assessed the interactive effects of smoking, depression, and anxiety on mortality in patients with COPD. They collected and analyzed data from 7,787 subjects with COPD in 14 rural communities from May 2008 to May 2012 and used logistic regression to evaluate the interactions and relative excess risk due to interaction. They applied the attributable proportion of interaction and the synergy index to evaluate the additive interaction of the factors. The interaction of current smoking and depression symptoms increased the death risk by 3.8-fold with significant biological interactions. The biological interactions also increased with increasing years or pack years of smoking. The authors concluded that smoking, depression, and anxiety are associated with higher risk of death in patients with COPD. The risk of death, depression, and anxiety increases with increasing duration of smoking in years and in cigarette pack years. Smoking, depression, and anxiety increase the risk of death in patients with COPD, but the combined effect of these factors is unknown. Liu and colleagues found that smoking, depression, and anxiety were associated with higher risk of death in patients with COPD. The risk of death, depression, and anxiety increased with increasing years of smoking and cigarette pack years. Upper and lower limb muscles in patients with COPD. Similarities in muscle efficiency but differences in fatigue resistance is by Miranda and colleagues. They compared muscle fatigue and recovery time between two representative muscles, the middle deltoid and the quadriceps femoris. 21 subjects with COPD underwent maximal voluntary isometric contraction and an endurance test. The maximal voluntary isometric contraction test was repeated after 10 minutes, 30 minutes, 60 minutes, and 24 hours for both the quadriceps femoris and middle deltoid. Surface electromyography was recorded throughout the endurance test. Maximal voluntary isometric contraction significantly decreased only for the middle deltoid between 10 and 60 minutes after the endurance test. A significant increase of the root mean square 
and a greater decline in median frequency throughout the endurance test occurred for the middle deltoid compared with the quadriceps femoris. When dyspnea and fatigue scores were corrected by endurance time, higher values were observed for the middle deltoid in relation to the quadriceps femoris. The authors concluded that subjects with COPD had a higher fatigability of representative upper limb muscle than a lower limb muscle. Peripheral muscle dysfunction is a common finding in patients with COPD. These authors compared muscle fatigue and recovery time between two representative muscles, the middle deltoid and the quadriceps femoris. They found that subjects with COPD had a higher fatigability of a representative upper limb muscle than a lower limb muscle. Effect of high-flow nasal cannula on thoracoabdominal synchrony in adult critically ill patients is by Itagaki et al. They studied 40 adult subjects requiring oxygen therapy in the ICU. Low-flow oxygen up to 8 liters per minute was administered via oral nasal mask for 30 minutes, followed by high-flow nasal cannula at 30 to 50 liters per minute. Respiratory inductive plethysmography transducer bands were circumferentially placed, one around the rib cage and one around the abdomen. The authors measured the movement of the rib cage and abdomen and used the sum signal to represent tidal volume during mask breathing and at 30 minutes during high flow nasal cannula. They calculated the ratio of maximum compartmental amplitude to tidal volume and the phase angle. Arterial blood gas and vital signs were assessed at each period, and mouth status during high-flow nasal cannula. During high-flow nasal cannula, breathing frequency significantly decreased from 25 breaths per minute to 21 breaths per minute, and phase angle significantly improved. The authors concluded that high-flow nasal cannula improved thoracoabdominal synchrony in adult subjects with mild to moderate respiratory failure. High-flow nasal cannula creates positive oropharyngeal pressure and improves oxygenation. Until now, however, it was unclear whether it also improves thoracoabdominal synchrony in patients with mild to moderate respiratory failure. This was the focus of the study by these authors. They found that high-flow nasal cannula improved thoracoabdominal synchrony in adult subjects with mild to moderate respiratory failure. Predictors of exercise-induced oxygen desaturation in systemic sclerosis patients with interstitial lung disease is by Somea and colleagues. They studied potential predictors of exercise-induced oxygen desaturation in patients with systemic sclerosis. Data were collected prospectively from 800 of 110 consecutive systemic sclerosis patients with normal oxygen saturation at rest who could perform the six-minute walk test without physical discomfort, including leg pain. Pulmonary function tests and echocardiography were collected from all subjects. 30 subjects showed 4% or greater decline in oxygen saturation during the 6-minute walk test, which constituted the desaturation group. The other subjects were assigned to the normoxic group. Logistic regression analysis showed the percent of predicted DLCO as a highly accurate predictor of exercise-induced oxygen desaturation. 
the authors concluded that the factor underlying exercise-induced oxygen desaturation appeared to be reduced percent of predictive DLCO, which was useful as a predictor in over 80% of the subjects. DLCO is a good marker of disease severity in patients with idiopathic interstitial pneumonia and is associated with oxygen saturation. However, little is known about DLCO in patients with systemic sclerosis and interstitial lung disease. These authors found that the percent of predicted DLCO is a highly accurate predictor of exercise-induced oxygen desaturation. This was useful as a predictor in over 80% of the subjects. The next paper is Impact of Bronchodilator Responsiveness on Quality of Life and Exercise Capacity in Patients with COPD by Ortega et al. They analyzed whether symptoms, quality of life, and exercise capacity varied in COPD patients as a function of bronchodilator test results and compared responses to an exercise program. A positive bronchodilator test result was defined as FVC and or FV1 improvement of greater than 12% plus greater than 200 milliliters after 400 micrograms of salbutamol. They studied 198 COPD subjects, 94 with positive reversibility and 104 with negative reversibility. Training sessions were carried out on three non-consecutive days each week for 12 weeks and consisted of a combination of resistance and strength training. Subjects were evaluated on two consecutive days at baseline and at the end of the 12-week training program. Those with positive reversibility had shorter time to exhaustion in the endurance test, shorter shuttle walk test distance, and lower chronic respiratory disease questionnaire scores. There were no significant differences in peak exercise, peripheral muscle strength, dyspnea, or improvement after exercise training. The authors concluded that, compared to COPD subjects with negative reversibility, those with positive reversibility walked for shorter distances and had shorter endurance times and worse quality of life, but the improvements after exercise training were similar. Bronchial reactivity in patients with COPD may be a phenotypic feature associated with clinical characteristics and differential treatment response. It is interesting that these authors found that subjects with COPD and positive reversibility walked for shorter distances, had shorter endurance times, and had a worse quality of life. However, the improvements after exercise training were similar in the two groups. I will now review the remaining original research papers that we published this month. The purpose of the study by Kaminsky and colleagues was to determine whether there are distinguishing physiologic characteristics of patients with discordance between percent of predicted peak work versus peak oxygen consumption in order to understand how to use these measurements in interpreting exercise capacity. Their observation that there are distinguishing physiologic features in those who have a higher peak work than peak oxygen consumption provides insight into underlying processes determining maximal exercise capacity. 
To maximize the likelihood of successful long-term mechanical ventilation in patients with neuromuscular diseases, ventilator characteristics and settings must be chosen carefully, taking into account both medical requisites and patient preference and comfort. Lafaso and colleagues found that patients and prescribers' opinions differed about the ideal home ventilator. Patients were less prone to use new technologies, mainly because of a lack of information, underlying the need for regular update in patients receiving long-term mechanical ventilation. The goal of the study by Fitzgerald et al. was to assess the clinical feasibility of high-frequency chest wall compression therapy in neurologically impaired children with respiratory symptoms. They found that regular use of this therapy may reduce the number of hospitalizations in neurologically impaired children. The impact of different CO2 exhalation systems and leaks on the actual FiO2 and gas exchange was evaluated by Story and colleagues. The use of a leak port circuit and the occurrence of leak around the interface significantly reduced oxygen concentration at the mask and negatively impacted gas exchange in subjects receiving home non-invasive ventilation and supplemental oxygen. There are a few studies using animal models of chest physiotherapy. Kamaru et al. aimed to develop a model of obstructive atelectasis induced by artificial mucus injection in the lungs of newborn piglets for the study of neonatal physiotherapy. Their model of atelectasis in newborn piglets was feasible and appropriate to evaluate the impact of physical therapies on atelectasis in newborns. Our case reports this month relate to removal of aspirated teeth in a multiple trauma patient and another related to necrotizing tracheitis secondary to Corynebacterium species presenting with central airway obstruction. Our teaching case is on the role of pulse steroids in bleomycin-induced lung injury. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www. .rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.